Good morning. I think we're going to get ourselves going here. Uh, welcome. We're uh, glad you joined us today. My name is Lisa Warner. I am a PA from Lawndale Christian Health Center up in Chicago, Illinois. Um, it's nice to see a few familiar faces out here and other new friends here. Um, I'm here with my colleagues today, Emily Burton, who's a nurse, also at Lawndale, and uh, Dr. Teddy Park, who's a family practice physician, also at Lawndale. And here, we're here today to talk about relocation. And um, I don't know how many folks are familiar with this whole concept of domestic missions and uh, Christian community development. But this is in the context, I mean, at face value, people, we talk about living in the neighborhood in which you work and serve, and that is sort of a no-brainer. But for those of us who choose to uh, work in underserved areas, often urban, sometimes very rural, uh, domestically in the U.S., um, sometimes the decision to move into the neighborhood is not as straightforward and not... um, not as much as an obvious uh, uh, decision. And oftentimes we're living, or most of the times, we're living cross-culturally. And that, as you know, whether you're going overseas or staying uh, here in the U.S., um, that has its own um, issues and, and things to think about and contemplate. So we're very hopeful and prayerful that this conversation today, none of us are experts, we don't feel like experts, um, we, uh, however, have a lot of conversation around this, and we're just prayerful that this conversation is beneficial to you as in your own journey, as you're considering kind of what is the Lord calling you to do, and how do you go about making the most wise decision and discerning his will in that. So there are real issues in that, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, I think to just begin, we'd like to offer a prayer over this time. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place and pray that you will rest in our hearts, turn our minds and our eyes towards you ultimately. Um, God, give us open hands to know exactly what we need to receive from you, Lord. Give us swift feet to obey you from this step forward. God, I pray that you will move in this space as only you can. We will convict, encourage, sustain. Um, just move however you please, Lord. Let this be your time. Receive the glory and honor that is due your name, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Okay. So what I want to do first is just so you have a sense for the context from which we're coming, I'm going to give you just a little history of Chicago, very brief. And you can't talk too much about the history of Chicago without uh, talking about the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. And after that fire, you can see that uh, this map on your right, uh, which shows the Burnt District, uh, there was a great displacement of peoples. And this contributed to the settling of our neighborhoods, which are just west of that, uh, that central area, that downtown area. And our neighborhood of North Lawndale and South Lawndale, I'll talk about that, um, was settled mostly by Bohemians and Eastern European Jews. And in fact, to this day, you'll see a number of Jewish temples all throughout our neighborhood. In the 50s and the 60s, of course, there was the Great Migration, and uh, a, a great number of African Americans moved from the South to the North. And one of those cities, of course, was Chicago. And many, many African Americans settled in our neighborhood of North Lawndale, um, during that time, and there was a great demographic shift, something we call white flight, in which these neighborhoods that were predominantly white, um, over the course of about 10 to 15 years, went to predominantly over 90% African American. And we can't talk too long about the dynamics in our neighborhood uh, without talking about what emerged in terms of systemic practices around uh, lending practices, systemically racist practices called redlining and other issues that um, impacted the ability of African Americans to purchase their homes uh, through mortgages and loans in a fair way. And studies have shown that the impact of wealth accumulation over the course of generations still impacts us today. 
So you can imagine in this context there was increasing poverty, frustration. Martin Luther King Jr. actually moved to our neighborhood in 1966 to draw attention, national attention, to some of the housing issues and disparities in this neighborhood. Of course, there were riots that uh, broke out in Chicago in 1968 at his assassination. Businesses moved out. Jobs became scarce. And I just put up some uh, current statistics. 26% um, unemployment, 38% of folks who graduate from high school. Only over half of the households in the neighborhoods uh, earn less than $25,000, just to give you a sense. So meanwhile, in South Lawndale, which is the neighborhood just south of North Lawndale, which is separated literally by train tracks, there's a train that goes through there, also had similar demographic shift after the Great uh, Fire, Eastern European Jews, and for a number of factors, not very many African Americans settled in that part of the neighborhood. And... um, For other reasons, in the 60s and the 70s, a great number of Mexican immigrants actually uh, relocated to the South Lawndale neighborhood. And so the other term we use there is is La Villita. And you can see some of the um, statistics also in there. Uh, Unemployment, close to 50%. Um, I I just put in there the population is, is twice, over twice as much as in North Lawndale of about the same size, so much more dense. And I just stuck in there a 0.2% Asian. And this is the neighborhood that Teddy lives in. (laughs) So he represents pretty much that that population. Um, 36% of the households earning less than $25,000. So it was in the 70s, in this situation, that Lawndale Community Church was established. And there's a whole story about this. Wayne Gordon and his wife, Anne, he was a coach at a local high school, started a Bible study. Out of that, started a church. And early on in their, their history, they were taking a needs assessment uh, um, of the neighborhood. And out of this church, they, they talked about the need for quality, affordable health care. Uh, as, as a major need among the residents in North Lawndale. And it was out of that that the, the, the vision for Lawndale Community, or excuse me, Lawndale Christian Health Center was born. And that building at the top, that paid, is an old Cadillac dealer, and that was the original building that was purchased to put in the, the first clinic. I won't talk a lot about what Lawndale is now, but it, is, it has expanded over 35 years. They've got six different locations, over 500 staff. We have over 100 providers. Um, and thinking like broadly about community development, we have a farm. Um, we do, uh, we've opened up a senior center, immediate care, and other things. You can come to our booth for more information if you're interested in that. So this idea of Christian community development was... Has been in the works for all, a, a number of these years. There's a story of John Perkins, who's considered really the father of Christian community development, um, who got to know Wayne Gordon in these early years, and together they were developing these principles of what they they felt like. They were looking around the U.S. and seeing these, in, particularly in communities of, of of color in these urban areas, great disparities: economic disparities, health disparities, housing disparities. And trying to think from a Christian perspective, like as the body of Christ, what are we called to do? What is our response in our, you know, in our world here? And it was out of this that these principles of what we call the three R's, so reconciliation, redistribution, and, and relocation. So this idea of relocating into the neighborhood came about as we, as, as for both the church and the health center, and they embraced that from early on and encouraged people who were coming to work at the health center to not just drive into the neighborhood, do your work, and then drive out of the neighborhood. But when you drive in or when you come to work in the morning, you go back to the neighborhood and suddenly the issues of the neighborhood take on a completely different flavor, right? They take on a completely different significance. So the drug dealing on the corner of 19th and Troy is not just a Lawndale neighborhood issue. This becomes my issue because that's my corner. The way I pray about that, the way I engage my neighborhood completely changes when I am geographically present in that space. And so there was this idea of moving into the neighborhood, living cross-culturally, linking arms with the resources that were already there, and, and 
striving for, you know, we've done a lot of thinking about, well, like, what is it that we're really after? And I, I, I think to capture it is um, best to think about where is the place of the body, in Christ, uh, body of Christ in these hard places and to bring forth the kingdom of God. Right, so none of this is devoid. Like all of this is motivated by this understanding that we all need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, through the gospel, reconciled to each other, and um, just reconciled as communities. And so this is the motivation out of which we're relocating. I'm going to put up here a slide um, that has a number of resources. I'm just going to leave this up. You can uh, take pictures or, or, or capture that in a minute. We'll probably mention a few of these things. But these have been resources that all three of us have found. I mean, we all contributed to this list. But there's some really great stuff. We're not going to flesh out much today. It might be a little uh, unsatisfying. But in a sense, we're hoping that you can go to these other places. Um, to get some more information. So I want to ask these folks to share their stories of uh, how they got to Lawndale and why they chose to relocate. So I'll tell you, uh, I'm a family person at Lawndale. I've been at Lawndale for seven years. And um, my background is that I uh, am a Korean-American that was born in the States, and I grew up in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. Specifically, one of the most, if not the most, uh, uh, wealthiest county in the states, and um, uh, went on to Northwestern University, both for uh, uh, me, undergrad and medical school. And um, growing up, I grew up in a, a Korean American church. Uh, my parents were very involved. Uh, Deacon became my dad became an elder. I was very involved in church and uh, got involved with a. Uh, Korean American Church uh, when I was at Northwestern and their campus fellowship there. So what I didn't realize at the time was um, how um, my view of the world and my view of Christianity and view of God uh, might have been influenced by my very privileged uh, upbringing and very, um, I would say, unique experience being in a Korean American church environment growing up. And I, and I I kind of assumed that a lot of people had experienced certain things and, and wasn't aware of that. So during college, there's a few uh, experiences that led me to kind of question um, that viewpoint and, and start to think about looking outside, you know, a Korean American Christian experience and um, and about uh, a little bit about uh, privilege and, and wealth. And um, one was just a white guy coming to our, our campus fellowship and starting to you know ask about God and. That started to, you know, put the question in my heart um, about, you know, why does Sunday morning, uh, why is Sunday morning the most segregated part of the week? And that kind of bugged me. Uh, and um, there was a, a campus um, concert that a couple of the football players had organized that brought all the campus fellowships together in the spirit of unity. And that was something that I saw that, you know, isn't that what the kingdom of God should look more closely like? And um, so, you know, when I, I, I thought about the question of when I pray the Lord's Prayer and I pray, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what, is, what does that really mean? Do I know what that really means? And I kind of felt like, I'm, I'm not sure I do. So, um, uh, I read the book uh, by Lauren Cunningham, um, the founder of YWAM, Is That Really You Guide? And I was struck by the stories in the book. Um, and, and, of like, you know, who is this God that this guy worships? Because it kind of sounds like a God that I don't follow. And, and so it kind of was a natural progression from there to, to look to do discipleship training school um, with YWAM. And uh, so I did. I took a break, did that, and then landed back in medical school. Um, and during medical school, went to a church that um, valued uh, diversity, multiculturalism, social justice, racial reconciliation and, and uh, one of the other things that um, they, they encouraged people to do was to relocate into the neighborhood where the church was and um, so that was the first time that I had kind of seen that myself and so there were some seeds that were planted there 
for this uh, this model of CCDA, which I didn't have uh, you know, the terminology for it back then. Um, and I went from there to Cincinnati for training, was involved with a church there that had some CCD um, value there. And while I was in training, I, I came here to the conference. And I remember 15 years ago going to one of the breakout sessions that uh, Rick Donlin was um, uh, sharing about his experience um, relocating into the neighborhood. And I was kind of like, wow, that's really cool. And, and some of the stuff that um, he was sharing about really, um, you know, uh, inspired me, and um, I went from Cincinnati to Indianapolis, uh, landed in a Christian health center there that was in an urban area, and was part of a church that ended up planting in a mixed-income neighborhood and relocated there. So that was kind of my first experience, relocating myself, and um, a short story is basically that, that that church plant ended up folding, and that was kind of a, a traumatic experience and then ended up um, thinking about like uh, direction and um, had a friend who recruited me uh, to work at Lawndale and uh, once I felt like doors were closing with the church and with my workplace um, decided I would go to uh, Chicago and to Lawndale and since I was starting anew I felt like okay maybe, you know I don't have anything that I'm really tied to and moving into the neighborhood, um, you know, I think there was some uh, anxiety about that, but I felt like, well, if I'm going to do it, I might, as do it. I might as well do it starting here, and so um, moved into the neighborhood where I knew a lot of other people from, uh, you know, the health center had relocated to the neighborhood, so I, would, I, I had a confidence that, you know, I'm not going to be there by myself, and there will be some support, you know, structure there for myself, so that's how I got to Longdale. Um, I didn't know nothing about Lawndale or Chicago. I didn't pick Chicago. I didn't want to go to Chicago. Um, but as I'm sure everyone in this room can attest, many are the plans in a man or woman's heart. But it is the Lord's that prevails um, for better. So um, I uh, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, whoop, whoop, I got Tulsa's in the house at this conference, y'all. Um, but I, um, I am a nurse by trade, and I was working in an inpatient cardiac setting there. Um, and then I was also volunteering in a cross-cultural youth ministry setting. And a buddy of mine that I was volunteering with was like, hey, I heard this organization, and they um, take, you know, kind of wild, ambitious folks, uh, throw them in a house together and say, go love Jesus, go love people. And um, and I think you'd be great for it. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Like, uh, and and it took me about three years for the Lord to soften that soil. Um, but it always lingered. And uh, and so I was like, okay, let me let me sign up for this organization. Um, and uh, still, never heard of Lawndale, but basically what they do is they partner you um, and your household with different uh, skill sets, and you partner in a service site. Um, exemplify other kingdom aspects of solidarity, diversity, justice, uh, community living, faith, church partnership, etc. And um, so I signed up, and they gave you a choice of cities, and Chicago was not my number one choice of city. And um, so, I mean, I'm not in the front with y'all, like, I did not want to go to Chicago. So, um, anyway, I... God was like, you're going to Chicago. So the organization placed me here, or there, with Lawndale Christian Health Center. Um, and it's interesting. So uh, how the Lord kind of works with me is like there's a, there's a little, tiny little spark that he, that he fans, you know. And then after a while, you realize like you're just kind of on fire. Um, and it's just like opportunity kind of shifts in the heart to more intentionality. Um, and so through, it was a really intensive program, as you can imagine, um, and we were living on the west side of Chicago, uh, it was four black girls and three white girls living in a house together, um, and it was, it was an incredible experience, an incredibly intense experience. Um, I was serving as a nurse at Lawndale Christian Health Center at the time, um, and I went in as a learner, and 
if y'all know anything, it's the more you learn, the more you learn you don't know. Um, and I, the Lord just kept like uh, stirring in my heart like, more and more of what I just did not know. Um, and I thought I loved, like, I thought I loved my neighbors well, and I thought I loved well prior to this experience. Um, and then I realized, like, uh, like how can I how can I say that I love when I don't even know people? How can I say that I love when I don't even like know the pain and the beauty of folks? Um, and and so with that, it was just like, okay, God, like, uh, like I, I, I want to I wanna love, and like to love, I need to know, and to know, I need to stay. And so that year was up, and um, I felt invited by the Lord to remain in Chicago. Um, and Wanda was gracious to uh, keep me on board. I guess I didn't burn too many bridges there, but um, she's advocated for me. Uh, but yeah, we, it, it's been quite a journey. And then through a course of um, ran, I say ran, divinely orchestrated events, um, I had this weird finger infection, and one of the doctors at the clinic um, attempted to uh, <laughs> IMD it. Anyway, ended up in the ER, and uh, and then she had an ant infestation. All of this, many stories, but basically like linked me with a kindred spirit, and we now live in an intentional community in North Lawndale on the same block of uh, 19th and Troy with Lisa and them. Um, and and it's been it's been beautiful to be to have the privilege of being so proximate, um, and it's interesting because presence presence matters, um, but it, it's possible to be proximate without being present. Um, but it's really difficult to be present without being proximate. And so um, the Lord has just been kindly whispering all these sweet opportunities to me to just like. Go a little deeper, know a little more, love a little harder, um, and experience me, God, in in the pain. Experience me in the beauty. Experience me in the diversity. Like this is my kingdom. I I am creator. I have made this beautiful. And um, pay attention to the assets that are here. Learn and um, stay at the table in any and all circumstances. Stay at the table. And when and don't just invite folks to your table, um, but go sit at theirs and under and under people's leadership who think different, look different. Um, and so the word, yeah, just really has transformed my heart. Um, in a beautifully surprising way over the course of the last five years. I want to make, just flesh out this idea of proximate and present. When, when we use that term being proximate, um, <clears throat> we're, we're talking about relationally engaged with someone. And ultimately, that's what we're after, right? Finding, that finding ways to engage with another towards the act of reconciliation, towards the act of being salt and light, towards the act of receiving what God has for you in that relationship. And so there's an argument out there. Um, I, I, I sat with our, an African-American pastor who grew up in the neighborhood who currently works at Lawndale as our chief ministry officer, but no longer lives in the neighborhood. We had a long conversation about this, and he really argues uh, that you don't have to be present, meaning geographically located, in order to be proximate, have these relationships in which you are meaningfully engaged with people. And I will grant him that. And so he referred, he talks about some people that he knew, um, some white folks who come into the neighborhood every week and they're volunteering at a food pantry through his church and because he still pastors in the neighborhood. And I, I can grant that, but, I, but and he said for himself, like it's there are natural ways for him to engage relationally in the neighborhood. But I said, look, for me, I'm like a white girl who grew up in, on a farm in Iowa. It is distinctly different for me to re- engage relationally in these uh, here in in my workplace in the neighborhood 
without being present because there's it's it's not as easy. It's not as natural to have natural relationships in that context. But when I'm a neighbor and we're raking leaves together or we're talking about the drug dealing that's happening down the street, there is a natural there's a natural relationship that ensues there. And that is is the basis by which you have these meaningful interactions with people. So that's my caveat to, to just flesh that out a little bit. My husband and I moved into Lawndale in 1993. Uh, we had become acquainted with CCDA, um, and my husband went to a, a conference. They hold annual conferences. and But just by way of hands, who's familiar with CCDA in the room here? Okay. All right. So less than half. Okay, that's helpful for us to know. Um, we learned about Lawndale Community Church during that time, and so we ended up going to Lawndale Community Church. We were not living, we were living north uh, of the neighborhood, and we were aware that they embraced this idea of relocation. We were considering that, but truth is, we were getting really involved. I was doing some coaching, uh, some volleyball in the church, and we were doing youth stuff. So we were down in the neighborhood four or five times a week. It just became, it was a practical decision for us. There wasn't a lot of thought about moving into the neighborhood. And then we got there, and in the first six months of moving there, our apartment was broken into five times. And suddenly, this very practical decision changed. It wasn't so practical to to be there. And, and, And what entered in were many other dynamics and things to sort through. And as I look back... As I look back, we ended up moving to another place about a year later, um, and things weren't so hard from that standpoint. But I look back at that, and I feel like the Lord used that so mightily in our lives to place us in a position of need and vulnerability. We were talking to our neighbors. We were talking to folks at church, which was right around the corner for us. After the fifth time, there were some folks who just marshaled a group to come over and just pray over. We were receiving wisdom, you know, how do you deal with this? It wasn't just targeted against us. Obviously, we're not the only ones in the neighborhood who who, uh, experienced things like that. So there was this avenue to go in and begin these relationships under some duress and difficulty, and I look back at that as truly, truly a gift. The other thing it did for us was um, bring us to our knees. Like, this was not going to be something we in our own power were going to be able to do. We in our own power could not reconcile with our neighbors. We in our own power could not overcome the racial barriers and the socioeconomic and the education barriers. This was going to be something deeply rooted in the gospel. And so it drove us to our knees, memorizing psalms. (laughs) Rick Donlin often talks about the beauty of the psalms in our difficult circumstances. Those became absolute treasures for us. And... So over the ensuing years, we had three kids. We raised our kids there. I should just, as a caveat, say we actually left Lawndale for about four years. We lived in Afghanistan, and then we were two years in Memphis. So we weren't in Lawndale for all these 26 years continuously. But we always had our own house there that we kept and we returned to. So that's really been considered, like, in our home, in our hearts, that's really been our, our sense of home. And, I, again, just over those years as we um, engaged in these beautiful relationships, and, and it just takes time to do that, but also struggled with the drug dealing and the shootings and such. There were multiple times that we had to come back to our knees. And all I can say is that, like, I just I remember there was a shooting, broad daylight, right in front, right down the sidewalk. And I just thought, Lord what if the kids had been outside, right? Like, it was, it was, it was, it was so close. And um, I just remember being up on my knees and, like, my palms up before the Lord, like, you, Lord, were just, were, were crying out for wisdom just to know, um, are we where you want us to continue to be? And so 
relocating became this thing of discerning a calling, okay? It wasn't just a practical decision or a philosophical decision, but it became. And that is what we all do, whether you're overseas or anywhere. But, um, again, I, I, I feel like looking back, this has been such a rich history for, for our family, and just as a note, I want to say that these activities, these going back to the Lord to discern our calling and work through fear and work through safety issues, laid the groundwork and work in a very significant way to prepare us to go to Afghanistan. Our families who really resisted and objected to us relocating to Lawndale, when we came to the point years later that we felt God calling us to Afghanistan, they were like, no, 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 uh, Lawndale's fine. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was sort of this, it, it, it prepared them as well, I, I feel like. Um, I'd like to go, uh, we'd like this to be a little bit of an organic conversation, but I, I've asked these guys to, if you would share a, just a meaningful story that would depict how this has been a gift or hardships and, uh, or both in that. Hold it up close to here. Right here. Um, okay, so one thing I've learned about living in Chicago is a lot of life happens on the stoop. Um, and so I like to call it stoop life. Um, typically it's about three months out of the year, but whatever. We, make, we capitalize. So um, I, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do two short stories about stoop life. Um, one was I was coming home kind of late after uh, the clinic was closed around like 10 or something that night. And um, I was driving home and I parked on the block. And I get out of my car and I just hear this like screaming. It was a, it was a young female. And, uh, and, then, and I hear a man's voice as well that's a bit uh, loud. And so, and, I, you, and you know when you hear and you just can't pretend like you didn't. Um, and so, so I'm hearing the screaming, and I kind of sit, I, I sit and I listen. I'm like, okay, let me let me just start. Out. Is this like, is this a playful thing? Is this, you know, like what's 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 happening here? And just praying, like Holy Spirit, like come on me, like help me help me discern wisely in this situation. Did so, you say what time it was? Uh, it was like 11 p.m. or something. Yeah, it was late. Um, yeah, 10 and 11 something like that. So um, Lisa knows, <laughs> um, but. I, uh, so I was just like, I can't ignore this, right? So, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't on our block. It was, it was on the other side of the block. And um, I don't normally trek on that side. Um, and so anyway, I, I keep hearing the screaming. And um, so obviously uh, a, an argument that's happening. And so, so I just kind of like walk up, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and they're on the stoop, uh, this gentleman and this, and this lady. And, um, and going at it, and she's just like in tears, and, and his posture was one of aggression towards her. Um, and, and so I, I kind of just like bypass looking at him and, and, just, and just look at the girl. And, and I'm just like, are you okay? Like, what, what's happening here? And, she, and, and he answers for her, um, and I, I kind of ignore him, and I'm just like, are you, are you okay? Like, what's going on, you know? Um, do you need help? Can I, can I do something? And at which point, um, stoop life is interesting, man. Like, uh, the, the gentleman uh, then proceeded to, like, walk towards me um, and, and threaten me with some words. Um, and I was like, I think this is my, I think this is my cue to leave, <laughs> to call in some reinforcements. Um, so, anyway, I was like, I don't want any trouble, just looking out for, for the girl. And she invited me, she asked me to, to call the police. And so, um, and so I did, and I kind of, backstepped and walked away and um, and in the moment like I was the, the spirit had given me an a unfamiliar strength and um, and then I uh, called the police and proceeded to bang on Lisa's door <laughs> and um, and she and her husband were so kind and as soon as I stepped in through that threshold I lost it I was like trembling um, and just weeping, and they're like, "What? Is, what just happened?" You know, and um, and uh, anyway, cops came, girl ran, um, and uh, as far as I know, that's where it landed. Um, 
And so that was just a story of like of being of being present and um, and trusting trusting uh, the spirit of power that we have um, as believers and spirit of hope and healing um, that we offer in particular spaces. Um, the other one, I was a recipient of being seen and known and receiving compassion on the stoop. I was, I was walking, uh, and I believe that the invitation to relocate is simple. I believe it's an invitation to just live, <laughs> to just live um, where God asked you to live. And so I'm going about my routine, just going for a walk in the park um, that's around the around the corner, and um, and a neighbor uh, who's an older lady, she just she sees me and she takes compassion on me, and I felt Christ in her. You know those times when Jesus is going about and he he stops, he's interrupted for a holy purpose. And he takes compassion on those around him. And I was the recipient of it. And we sat on her stoop for an hour. She wept with me. She comforted me. She prayed for me. I'm not entirely sure that every word that came from her mouth was spirit-driven. But um, <laughs> it was. I definitely like felt the presence of God on me in that moment. And so, um, and the Lord humbles me in those times to be like, you know, you're not the only one with blessings to give or things to offer or me to offer. Um, like sometimes, like, take on a spirit of humility um, and receive the love that I have for you in this particular space. She then proceeded to invite me into her home, pray and, and, and meet her daughter that had just been laid up with a severe uh, motor vehicle accident, broken hips, and um, couldn't walk. Um, and and I've known her in passing for two years. And but that day, but that day there was in crossing the threshold of the stoop to the home with Lisa, there was a deep comfort in crossing the threshold of the stoop into the home of one of our neighbor friends. There was there 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 it was a movement, you know, and um and and it just looked like it was a deep deep softening of of my heart and uh, one way that I experienced the kingdom of God in our context. Um, so uh, a couple things for me. Um, so I, uh, as Lisa mentioned, I live on the little village side uh, in the neighborhood, I'm, and I'm literally like pretty much right on the border of those train tracks. And uh, but I go to. Um, actually Pastor Brooks' church, the, the, our chief ministry officer at work. And so I, I walk there, and it's basically a black Baptist church. And that, I think, has been a really uh, interesting experience for me, and that's been a really um, growing experience for me. And um, you know, I've actually had a conversation with Pastor Brooks, and it was interesting just to think about, um, uh, you know, he expressed some uh, desire or heart or, you know, thought it would be cool to see, you know, a multicultural church happen, but he was asking the question, why does it seem to not happen, you know, at, in a black neighborhood? Why is it kind of always, you know, in an urban setting, city like Chicago that's diverse, you know, from a, from a white white yeah. church or an Asian church or, or something like that? So that was kind of interesting to think about. And, um, um, you know, in thinking about stories, you know, for these these breakouts, um, it was kind of hard for me because, you know, 15 years ago I was hearing like this inspiring story of how things like really went really well with this church plan with Rick Donlin, and, and I've had a lot of struggle, um, you know, finding community, feeling like, you know, what am I doing here? And I just kind of sort of wandered into this, and God, am I in the right place? And um, you know, I mentioned the church plant that had folded in Indianapolis, and it took me a long time to figure out what I was looking for in church and where I wanted to go. And even when I landed at Harmony, I, I wasn't even really sure that I'd made the right decision. Um, and you know, but I, I kept like going there, feeling like, okay, I think this is where you're, you want me to be, God. And um, a lot of Sundays I didn't necessarily feel like it, and I wasn't <coughs> connecting with the congregation. And um, uh, it took a, a long time and um, for things to get better. And, and 
couple years ago, um, you know, I had been struggling a lot with these questions, and I got to the point that, you know, with work, with where I was living, with church, um, I, I wasn't sure that I, was, I had made the right decision or that I was in the right place at that point. And I, I ended up taking a month sabbatical, and I, had, I, I tried to keep this under wraps at the time, and I didn't tell but, like, three people. Um, and it was, it was a really hard thing for me, a really emotional time. And, and, um, and I, during that month, I felt like, okay, I think if you quit now, you're, you're not really giving this a chance. You know, give it three or six more months, see how you feel at that point, and just be, be all in. And, and I did that, and after those three to six months, I didn't necessarily feel like it was so clear, but I did have a sense, God, I do feel like you, you still want me to be here. I don't know what or what, you know, why. Um, but uh, fast forward seven months, seven, eight months later, um, I was working a Saturday morning um, in our main site, and um, there was a code blue that happened, and um, it happened to be uh, for a one-month-old baby that was a former 33-week or 33-week um, preemie, and uh, the baby was being vital uh, on the vital station right outside the room that I had been seeing a patient, and so I heard this blood curling scream out right outside the room, you know, open the door and see this, uh, you know, this woman kind of in a fetal position on the floor and initially thinking, what's wrong with her? And then I turn my head and I see this blue limp baby um, on the vital station and, you know, have to perform CPR. And, I mean, this is like a huge deal at the clinic. This kind of thing doesn't happen in an outpatient setting, you know, very, very often at all. And I remember, like, I mean, there were a lot of emotions going on at that time. And, but one of the things was, like, why me? I, did, I mean, I, I felt a little bit self-conscious about the whole situation. I was like, anyone else could have been in this situation. And I didn't want like, people coming up to me afterwards, like, what happened? And, you know, that was amazing or whatever. Um, but um, in the aftermath, it's kind of weird to say this, but I really feel like God wanted me there for that code in part for me, to reassure me of, you know, why I, I landed at Lawndale. And um, I, I wasn't even supposed to work that Saturday. One of the other providers had asked to uh, switch Saturdays, so I switched into that Saturday. And I subsequently, after switching into that Saturday, asked someone else to switch out because my cousin's wife was coming into town for a conference and was going to try to quit, coordinate more time to, to see her um, and that provider couldn't switch out of, out of her schedule so I ended up staying in that Saturday and landing um, in that wing of the building in that room right outside that, you know, that vital station um, and it was a funny Saturday because the staffing was half of uh, my site's staffing. And so the way we were all able to kind of coordinate and, and um, take care of the code was kind of, you know, from our perspective, pretty amazing. And, and just how some of the staff were able to care for the, for the mother. And in the aftermath, I, I um, you know, talked with the mom briefly and, um, you know, just debriefed her. And I said, you know, like, I think your baby's going to be fine. You know, they're obviously going to take care of her at the hospital. Um, and, you know, being at our, one of the satellite sites at our, our clinic, I thought, you know, this is not my patient. Um, you know, go to another site. I'm not going to see this mom or this baby again. And I felt I was okay with that. Um, you know, I was kind of curious. I did look in the hospital charts just to make sure the baby was doing okay. But I knew that, like, it was not my story for me to be, like, in connection with this mother. That's what I, what I felt. Um, so about six months after that, uh, our church has started doing these uh, monthly lunches after services, and I'm sitting downstairs in one of these, and, um, and I get a tap on the shoulder, and, and you know, this woman looks at me and says, Dr. Park, and I'm looking at her, and, and I'm like, I don't 
recognizing, and I'm pretty good with recognizing faces, and and um, and she says her name, and I'm like, I don't recognize her. It's like, do you save my my baby's life? Mm-hmm. And she had, you know, one of the things was she had died, and I'm like looking at her, and I realize, you know, um, who she is and what she's talking about, and and I was like, have you been coming to Harmony, or did I? And she's like, my mom comes here. And, She's been trying to get me to come here, and so um, that was confirmation for me from God that um, He wanted me where I was at. Because I mean, to have all those connection pieces, I could not have planned any of those things or, or tried to organize any of those things. Not that I would have wanted to be in that situation necessarily, but um, you know, in the midst of all that question of, you know, what was I doing there? Um, was I in the right place? Um, and feeling like I wasn't doing things well. Um, you know, it was um, you know, just to feel God's love and warmth through that whole situation was part of my story. And I know that, you know, it's a very unique story and not everyone's you know, journey is going to be that way, but um, you know, I think one of the things that I realized that um, I've had a lot of failures along the way, um, and I think one of the things I think you know some of it in my own doing, um, but one of the things that I, I, I thought about as far as feeling like we failed at different things um, in trying to serve God and trying to follow His lead is that um, when there are blessings, when there are things that happen, you can't take any credit for it. So, sorry. Um, Yeah, so, you know, I think part of my story is that everything's not going to go well. You're not going to feel like it's going well. But, having trust, having faith that this is where God wants you. And, and that sabbatical that I took, I had so many people telling me, or asking me the question, like, maybe you should, you know, do you think you should leave? Maybe you should go to another church, or maybe, you know, leave leave the clinic, or, or whatnot. And, and um, even though everyone else seemed to be uh, saying that, and it wasn't so clear, but I did have a sense in my heart that I think, you know, in hindsight, you know, with the Spirit, um, that, you know, I think I don't think my time here is done yet, so I, I, I kept moving forward. And you know, even when you don't see what's beyond one step, just taking that step forward, walking in faith is sometimes all you can, should do. Thank you. Thanks, Teddy. We've really wanted this conversation to be transparent and real. We want to talk about the real issues. I'll tell you one story about um, raising our kids. There's uh, people often have questions for for Rob and me about raising our kids uh, cross culturally like this, and I think it applies. It certainly applied when we were living overseas as well. But just to give a sense, I tell a story to, to give a sense of our posture to how we were trying to um, <clears throat> posture ourselves, or describe the posture we tried to create for our kids in thinking about. Um, living cross-culturally and how to interact with people who look different than them. Um, When our son was pretty little, he was probably like six or seven, um, he had seen a picture of a clown. I mean, face painted, colored hair, garish features. And he said to my husband, he's like, so, Dad, now is this man from another culture? (laughs) And we have this sort of realization like, oh, no, what are we doing? Uh, with our kids, but um, one of the dynamics we found uh, when they were in elementary school in Lawndale is that um, sort of unexpectedly, we realized that our kids were um, uh, developing these, these stereotypes that were unintentional on our part. I mean, creating these stereotypes, the very thing that we were attempting to dismantle culturally for them, 
we discovered that they were developing them, and in in part because. I mean, I opened up our yard. I wanted, you know, the neighborhood kids came in and played with our kids. Like, we really tried to engage relationally. And yet, sometimes there were just differences in culture. And also, because it's a, a poor socioeconomically, we got things stolen. That's not uncommon. It wasn't just us. It's, it's a lot of people in the neighborhood. But my kids began to associate some of these hard things with people of color. And that the white people in their world, which, because we didn't live around a lot of white people, they were some of the other folks who had transplanted, relocated to the neighborhood. They were the ones coming into our house, and there were two-parent families. They didn't use swear words. Like, we just discovered that there was this emergence of these stereotypes. And so what we decided to do, not only for, not just for this, um, for this issue, but there were a number of things that came together. We had been going to an African-American church. That seemed important to us. Um, but there were no peers for my kids. It was uh, made up of mostly older folks. And so there was a church plant happening with a younger pastor and a number of younger families with kids our kids' ages. So we ended up changing churches. It was important for a couple of reasons. I, I felt like maybe... Um, these relationships that we could engage with with peers that came from Christian families who had two-parent families, that there wasn't a, as much chaos going on in, in those families. And indeed, I think that was, uh, uh, it gave them more data, right, in a sense, more relationships by which to sort of form these things that form in us because that's what humans do, um, that the other aspect of that was continuing to sit under an African-American pastor. And I wanted my kids to see us sitting under an African-American pastor. Just again, in the history of our country, there was something deep inside my gut that wanted to help my kids engage with people of color in a way different than I did. I, I grew up very um, in a very monocultural Situation. It was a good life growing up. I do not regret that, but I wanted my kids to have a different experience in which they could maybe, in this next generation, begin to deal with differently and in a more healthy way to the glory of God with what has happened um, historically between particularly blacks and whites in, in America. So... Um, Okay, I want to leave a little bit of time for a few questions. I invite hard questions. These, we don't, <laughs> somebody's hand just shot up. <laughs> we, we want this to be real. We, obviously, these are hard things, but this is the deep stuff that I think uh, I want to get at the real questions that you have. Go ahead. Yeah, how are you perceived in the neighborhood? Are you perceived as high and mighty or, you know, that's a great question. It's something I think, I don't know about you folks, but I worry about all the time. I'm, I feel conscious of that. I feel a little sheepish about that. We, we have renovated a very, uh, a, a house, um, and it's a really nice looking house. I, I, I have some discomfort around that. I, I feel like I don't have a great answer to that. And I should mention one of the other panelists who was who who intended to come, Marcus Thorne, is an African American man with his family relocated. He didn't grow up there, but he relocated. His 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 frame of all of this is really very different. And I'm, he had a family emergency and so couldn't, couldn't come today. So, and I'm sorry not to have his perspective. But I think it's important um, with as much humility as you can figure out how to have humility, right? Part of that, I mean, even now, like I feel sensitive. Like I don't know exactly how this comes off. And I've had to struggle over the years with um, just privilege, right? Like just coping. Even the fact, somebody mentioned it yesterday, the fact that we have the choice to think about leaving this community is privilege, right? My neighbors, some of my neighbors do not have that option. And so I think keeping that in mind helps contribute to a sense of humility about this and and like Emily talked about her story, there are just these encounters that you have 
that you you realize as you as you live um, tr- deeply live presently there. I think you find these encounters in which you realize I am a complete receiver in this. This just is not about me. Is that helpful? Is there something you want to add? Okay. We probably have. I was just gonna say. Uh, um, I think for me, it's like how how am I perceiving myself in that context? Like, am I coming in as some kind of savior? You know, I have the savior. I offer him. He's the only hope I have to offer um, to anyone in any context. Um, but I think a lot of it is too. I have to. That that question makes me look internally. Um, that question makes me look at my own heart and be like. How do you perceive what is happening here? You know. Um, so I, the neighborhood's been kind of hard for me because there's been some turnover, and I just haven't connected as well, I think, on my block. Um, but at church, that's been a you know a question that I've you know asked like for a long time. You know, like, what does everyone else think of me? I mean, it's kind of hard to ask that question to, to people. And um, this is like uh, four. I forget how long in, but um, I was gone from church for a couple Sundays for, I don't know if it was vacation or, or what it was, but um, you know, I knew I was going to be back, and I came back, and you know, I, was, I was struck by how many people came up to me and like asked me, where have you been? And then, you know, like people, I mean, obviously I stick out at the church, but that people, you know, like recognized and came up to me and, and said to me afterwards, like, you know, it, it kind of indicated that we miss, they missed me. And I even had, like, one of the, the women, she came up to me, and I, I said, yeah, I was being gone for the weeks. I'm, you know, I'm here, and kind of thinking nothing of it. And she just, like, looked at me, you know, like, as we were embracing, she, she asked me, like, you're not, you're not going anywhere, are you? And that really, you know, moved me, because I had been asking that question. And, you know, I, I, think, I think one of the things is, you know, being present matters, and... I don't serve at the church. I don't, you know, do anything special there. I'm just a member of the church, and I think that's something that it was hard to feel that for years. And I, and if I try to think about it from a lot of people's perspective, um, from their perspective, have there been people that have come in and out of the church or come in and out of the neighborhood? Probably. So, so are they going to feel like that at the beginning? Probably not. But if you're invested and you make this your home, then I think people. We'll see that, and, and you know, we'll see you as one of their, you know, part of their family as well. There was a man, a doctor, who came into Lawndale. This just occurred to me. He, he came to the session yesterday, and he told me that when he moved into the neighborhood, he sat with the pastor of Lawndale Community Church, and he was talking about. He was a doctor, and he said, "Okay, so." I'm really interested in um, teaching some Sunday schools. I'd, I'd really like to serve as a deacon. I'd like to contribute in the church here. And I don't know, could I, you know, I'd be interested in serving on the, on the uh, board of the health center. And the pastor said, you know what, for the first year, you are going to spend the entire year being a good doctor at the clinic. He said, you are not going to serve in any capacity. And, and in part, I think that's getting at the question here, which is, um, you're just you're not going to operate exactly in the same roles, and I think part of the challenge and the gift is finding this way to operate in this in in roles that um, work with the assets that are already with the body of Christ that's already there in the neighborhood. Another question. She asked the question, how to be a good gentrifier. (laughs) We're chuckling because we're just like, as long as nobody asks about gentrification. (laughs) That's a whole other topic that is emerging. I I feel like this this is a topic that I... 
did not hear 20 years ago. I don't know, those of you else. And I should also comment, there are people sitting in the room who have done this in other contexts. In Memphis, they have done this with, in addition to house church. So they have settled in these underserved neighborhoods and also planted house churches right in the neighborhood as, as vehicles to engage relationally in the neighborhood. There's lots of folks who've done it different ways and picked their brains that those folks sit in this room. There's not an easy or fast or quick answer to that. I, I will say, I, I think gentrification has become a dirty word, and in, in a sense, in these contexts. And I think it's, it's, it's worth considering this, but also recognizing there are all kinds of nuances and definitions. Like, you have to really, what you are talking about when you say gentrification is not necessarily what other people think of in, in gentrification. And so I hope that's not a cop-out. I don't, I don't mean, I just, I really think it has, because I asked that question of one of our African-American friends, and they, their response to me was, it's all in how you live. It's all in how you engage with the community. Are you here in order to, you know, get a nice house that's cheap for you, and then you go out of the neighborhood to go to the coffee shops, and you really don't care what's happening here? That's bad, you know, that's the bad way of doing it. But he's like, if you relocate and you're engaging and your heart and your desire is for the good of this community, I mean, some people will argue that the, the, the fallout from that may still result in some people leaving because the, the, the tax base increases, and, and some people may argue that still happens. But there is a way in which my husband, for instance, will argue, go down my street and talk to any of my neighbors and ask any of them if they want their housing value to increase or not. Like... Yes. If they want fewer, less garbage on the street, yeah. You know, like, it's just, it's, it's a much more complex issue than, than what I think oftentimes they're talking about. So kind of follow up to that, when you move into these neighborhoods, um, what kind of economic decisions do you make as far as like, even like buying a house versus renting and, you know, who you're renting from if you decide to rent? Like, are those kind of intentional decisions that you're also making? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I don't buy. I rent um, with homegirl in the back. What up? Um, they're like... It, it. Oh, oh, sorry. My, my bad, my bad. Sorry. Okay, so she said... I got you. So um, she was asking what kind of economical decisions go into either renting or buying property in these particular areas, correct? Um, and so... Uh, for us, it was it was a very uh, it, w- it was an intentional community decision um, for us, and so our house is a household of like super awesome females. What to do? Um, that and and so it's it, 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 for us. It was more of like um, it it wasn't like I'm going in for to split the cost of some cheap rent. You know, five, six, sometimes seven ways. <laughs> um, but it was it was more of like you know we want to be intentionally living in a community with a body of believers, but in a context and many of us work at the clinic, um, and but then in a context um, where we can engage in these sort of converse, continue to engage in these sort of conversations. Um, one thing. Um, gentrification is going to happen whether we're involved with it or not um, and like I'm no expert I just have opinions um, but like and so the heart question I think is huge um, and and to ask yourself like the investors are coming in like people who view these lower income lower economic areas lower income areas whatever are um, they have motives also, and they have they're viewing everything as just like an investment opportunity. Um, and so for me, I think like what what God has convicted in my heart is like no 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 like the assets are already there, like like the assets are already there in the people in ways that like society wouldn't deem necessarily. Um, of any sort of investment value per se. And so, I don't know, um, ask the Lord to check your heart. I, we, we should. 
Well, go ahead. You, can you do it in a minute? Um, all right, so I was going to try to touch on the gentrification piece as well. I, I would steer away from actually using that word for yourself. Um, I think that, I mean, kind of piggybacking off of what they said for me, um, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think now about, like, what does redistribution mean? And so where I spend my money in the community, um, you know, do I just live there and I go out to places, like, in different parts of the city, nicer places uh, around the city, or am I, you know, going to eat local restaurants and local businesses? Um, and the conversation that I've been having with a couple other people that that have got together is going back to like the along the lines of the redlining piece of people in the neighborhood don't necessarily own, and how can we empower people to own themselves? So some of us who have, you know, working at the health center that have some, uh, you know, capital to be able to maybe help someone else uh, get over the hump of, you know, like a down payment or a mortgage, and, you know, they're able to be consistent about, you know, monthly payments, but just accumulating enough capital to, for, like, a, a down payment is, is not there. How can we help people who are in the neighborhood? I think those are the kinds of things. There are things that you can't control, you know, what happens, like, in an <coughs> economic system, but I think there, you can just be conscious about some of the decisions that you make think about some of those things and, and, and be intentional. And at that point, you know, if you're doing the best that you can, you do the best that can, you can, and you learn along the way. That's what I'd say. We need to let people go, so we're past our time, so if you need to go, feel free. Um, we're happy to continue to take questions. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, thanks.